Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. This week, we're talking with the executive producers of Hulu's new 9-11 series, Looming Tower, Dan Futterman, Alex Gibney, and Lawrence Wright. Stay tuned. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome Alex Gibney and Larry Wright. Great to be here. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Delighted. So congratulations on The Living Tower. Thank you. Tell me how this project started. What made you decide this was the right time to do it? Well, I'd had a lot of overtures from people who wanted to do something over the years, and I didn't want them to. I just didn't feel trusting that, you know, that the, the story would be cheapened in some fashion, commercialized, and... And uh, and also, at the time, the you know, television hadn't become what it is now. Uh, you know, to have the, the 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 ability to tell a sprawling story over many different episodes uh, and shot in many different countries, it, you know, just wasn't a part of the TV world like it is now. And uh, and it's it became obvious to me that if I were going to tell this story in another form than in my book. That was the right way of doing it, and it and it was the right way to approach a new generation, people who had grown up in the post nine eleven world who maybe didn't understand why we're living in the country that we're living now. And how did you get involved? Well, Larry and I had worked together twice before. Once uh, we I had done a film on his one man play called My Trip to Al Qaeda, which was actually all about the writing of, of the Looming Tower, and interestingly enough that. That uh, film includes the appearance of the real life Ali Sufan, uh, though at the time he was undercover and we had to film him, uh, you know, parts of his face and body. Wow. Um, and then we worked together on Going Clear. And Going Clear was a great experience. It was seen by a lot of people. Uh, and it also was a real trial by fire. And in mm-hmm. other words, uh, we had to face a, um, a lot of resistance, a, a lot of legal um, threats. Uh, and so. In terms of, um, you know, Larry came to me on this and, and we thought, well, maybe we can team up again and go in search of um, a showrunner and also a network to, you know, that has the courage and the skill to make this happen. So you landed at Hulu. Why was that the right home for this? We went everywhere. And so it was interesting to see, you know, when we went to Hulu, Hulu was not the Hulu it is now. And so uh, it was not high on our list. Several things. One, they really wanted it. And um, and they were willing to give us the money and the freedom and the backing uh, that we were demanding. Uh, and we were – th- the way I think 
we walked out of the meeting was, should we do this? Hulu? Really? <laughs> uh, rolling the dice? And boy, did we roll the dice and we, we, we really landed on the right numbers because uh, Hulu's been great to us. And look at how it's blossomed since then. It's just wonderful. The explosion of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And it's really put yeah. them on the map. Yeah. 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 We were really lucky. Was there ever any thought to making this into a film, or it needed to be a TV show just because of the sprawling nature of it? Oh, there were a lot of film ideas in the past, and you know, I, you know, it was never something that I was crazy about. Um, the landscape is too vast. That's it for yeah. this, and I think, you know, one of the things that's exploded over the last five years or so has been this long form series where it, it, it really. It's like a movie, but it's just a very long movie. And uh-huh. you have the opportunity to develop characters over time, which is really exciting to actors. But also for a story like Larry's book, and after all, we took a very small portion of Larry's book, um, you know, which is so sprawling, to be able to follow all those um, paths you know, to East Africa, to London, um, you know, to Yemen, back to the United States, to the West Coast, you know, and all these characters, there's an enormous number of characters in this drama. In a film, you would have had to have contained it to a very small story in order to make it work. And, and this one deserved a bigger canvas. Of course, we all know how the story ends. So what were the challenges for you in creating suspense and drama as you looked at adapting it? Well, if you think about one of the most... Um, uh, you know, a, a very powerful film, which is the Titanic. We all know mm. <laughs> what happened to the Titanic. What happened? Happily <laughs> <laughs> ever after, right? Yeah. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it isn't interesting to see what led up to it. And that mm. was really the power of this story. It's mm. the origin story. It's what leads up to that moment that we all know about. Because I don't think we really know that story and so that seemed to be the point of entry for us well it's it's a little bit like watching people go down the niagara river you know you know what is downstream but the people in the boat may not and that you know when that's the story we're telling these are people who are traveling down the river they don't know what lies ahead. They worry about it, and they're they're fighting against a phantom in some respects. But we all know, and so the sense of dread uh, uh, and the sense of tragedy is already implicit in the story, and more so in our minds than in the characters. Yeah, every moment feels so ominous because when they say things, every moment just sort of hangs there, and you're thinking, well, I know where this is going to play out. Yeah. Yes, even at the end of the first episode, John O'Neill hearing the news about the embassy bombings takes the train into New York and the camera tilts up and you see the two towers. Mm -hmm. It's devastating. Yes. And, you know, very ominous given where we know everything's going to play out. Given that this was nonfiction, how much creative license did you feel like you could take from a narrative point of view to tell the story to make it sort of appealing for an audience? Well, we took, you know, licenses to make it dramatic, to compress time. Some of our characters are composites, but the events are real. And so, as, you know, the, we we know this happened and this happened and this happened. The challenge is how do you move from one real event using characters that some of them are based on real people, some of them are composites. How do you thread the narrative and be as true as you can be to the course of history? Yeah, and that was the task that Danny uh, Futterman and the writer's room, you know, really faced. And it was Danny in that room that really navigated that territory. Mm-hmm. 
Talk about some of those characters. I mean, let's start with John O'Neill. He's almost larger than life. We learned that he's, you know, brilliant, but very flawed as well. Yeah. <laughs> when I was, the reason John O'Neill came up into my life is I, after 9-11, I was home in Austin trying to find, and the planes were grounded, so I couldn't get to New York. Just after 9-11. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I was trying to find a way to get into the story. And so I started uh, looking at the obituaries that were streaming online. And uh, uh, in the Washington Post uh, online site, a few days after 9-11, there was an obit for John O'Neill, who had been the head of counterterrorism for the FBI in New York. Ironically, that's the same job that Denzel Washington held in the, this movie I co-wrote called The Siege years before. And uh, and I I thought you know this is the man that uh, was supposed to get Bin Laden and Bin Laden got him, so I thought I have to write about John O'Neill and I had no idea uh, what a huge character he was. I mean, while I was researching, I ran into three women who thought they were engaged to him, and he <laughs> had a wife and two children back in New Jersey. Uh, this was a man who led a very complicated personal life and and deceptive life which yeah. is very interesting in the context mm. of a spy story but also the sort of shakespearean or greek quality of the uh, of the narrative of his life i mean he is reckless uh in his personal life and that gets him um pushed out of the fbi but then the idea that he ends up as head of security for the twin towers and he's there on that day when the attack yeah. happens i mean if you had made that up you would have said that's that's too much. It's over the top. Yeah, no one would believe it. Right. It was also interesting that you said you actually had to winnow down the number of girlfriends. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that would have been too unbelievable <laughs> if we had kept the number intact. Right. Yeah. What made Jeff Daniels right for the part? Well, you know, he, you probably heard him say he didn't know how to do it, but we knew he could do it. Um, Jeff is a person who has a tremendous amount of range. And uh, you know, look back at his career and all the different kinds of parts he's taken. And John O'Neill has such a, an immense arc. You know, he's he's so brash and confident, and at, at the end, he's so broken and vulnerable. And you know, you take take a it takes a great actor to be able to invest a character with all that confidence at the beginning, and then gradually see how his life is beginning to fly apart, and just as the danger. Uh, to our country is growing. Yeah, he's not physically like John O'Neill, and he doesn't come from a kind of similar background to John O'Neill. But I think Jeff's skill as an actor was what sold us. He could be Jeff Daniels can be anybody, uh, and he invests uh, that character with the spirit of O'Neill in a, th mm -hmm. in a way that I think is really powerful. Yeah, it's not it's not imitation. It's a full bodied performance of that rich character. What's also he also brings so much humanity to yes. it. I mean, he's you know he's that's a hero a you can root for. Yes, yeah, that's right. That, that's you you like him, and instead of condemning him for his behavior, you wish he wouldn't do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's like a mother. You know, you you're so you have a relationship with him already. You know. And the way the, the reveal is all played out is just it's done with such kind of. I, I mean, I, I can talk to Dan Fundman about it as well, but it's just charm and wit, and yes. you know. Mm -hmm. How do you blend the humor into this? I mean, we're obviously dealing with a very grave subject matter, but there are touches of humor. I mean, I think, is that that's part of life. Just, that's life. Yeah. Yeah. That's life. And, and I think without it, it doesn't, 
doesn't feel like life. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the darkest moments, there are times when we laugh. Um, I want to talk about Ali Sufan because he's also a very important character in all of this. Talk about building the story and you know, t- you know, telling his perspective on all of this. You know, when I was uh, working on the siege, when I was researching it, um, I, I learned that there was a, a Arabic-speaking agent in the FBI, and uh, and you know, I, he was undercover, so I couldn't talk to him. But I based a character that Tony Shalhoub played in the film on Ali Sufan, so I already knew him in the sense I knew about him and it wasn't until I started researching the looming tower of the book uh, that I actually met him and uh, and told his story and then uh, Ali uh, he became a, a figure in in our our documentary uh, uh, you know my trip to al-qaeda uh, so in a way for Ali has been a part of my life long before I even knew him. Uh, and now he's a real partner in this enterprise. And one of the delights to me of doing this project is we'll be able to present to our viewers uh, a real-life hero that you know they may not understand, you know, they may have never have heard of him. But it was Ali Soufan who uncovered who was behind 9-11. Yeah, and in, in this day and time when uh, you know our current administration is so obsessed with keeping Muslims out of America, uh, you know he represents the glory that is the the melting pot of America, and and he is a true American hero in that sense. Yet he was born in Lebanon. That's the way it's supposed to be. Right, and he we gave him asylum after the Civil War. So uh, you know he grew up in the Civil War in Beirut, um, and and he. He's a great patriot. Uh, it's it's just wonderful to have that opportunity to tell his story. How involved was he in, in this production at all? He's a consultant, and he's uh, he he was on board. I mean, you'd you'd have to ask Danny how much they they relied on him during the writing process. But you know, he was always there for us whenever we had a question. And you know, he's a named character, so that's important. and and his wife also came Indeed, into the his writers wife came world. into the writers' room. Heather, yeah. really, yes. yeah. So, you know, we had a chance for all the writers to meet her and uh, get to know the, the domestic side of Ali Sufan. And I think that's a big part of the story, too. We get to really see the personal interior lives of all of these characters. Yeah, They're right. very busy in the office, but it sort of fleshes them out more to know what's going on in their, in their own lives at home. Right, right. Uh, you know, the, what we want to show is that these are, you know, human characters. They're flawed. You know they've got their talents and their blind spots, and uh, and some of those blind spots and those personal jealousies stood in the way of us preventing 9/11. But we want to show each of our characters as a fully rounded human being. And I think, and again, that's something that's better put to Danny. But I I, I think that it was in the private lives of these characters that sometimes um, there is a kind of uh, a dramatic momentum that takes over. These characters evolve over time in the dramatic world, even though we were pretty rigorous about uh, being true to the events that, that these characters inhabited. And then I think that's also especially true of Peter Sarsgaard's character. I mean, yes. you know, he's not just the villain of all this. He's got much more dimension to him. You sort of, you know, we understand his frustrations and what he's trying to accomplish, too. I think you understand his perspective, too. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who are going to be very sympathetic to him when he's right. saying, look, we have an opportunity to take this guy Osama bin Laden out 
and you don't have you don't have the courage to do it. What's wrong with you? Because he's going to come back to haunt us. Well, those words feel pretty powerful um, in this day and time. And so, you know, there's that great line. I think it was Shaw who once said an argument between a right and a wrong is melodrama and an argument between two rights is drama. And 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 I think in the character of Martin Schmidt, drama comes alive because, you know, while he uh, this character, you know, is representative of Alex Station, end up ended up hiding the ball in ways that were pernicious. Nevertheless, there's much about him to be admired. Mm-hmm. Is that the message of this? This sort of you know flaws in the interaction between all the levels of our government. I think that's part of it, but I, I think there's also a big story here in terms of uh, of the failure of the CIA to have uh, disclosed the fact that um, two terrorists had come to this country, and and they this, knew it, and they knew it, and they and they've never been really held to account for that, and I think most Americans really aren't aware of that. So, it's not about. Um, coming up with some imagined punishment for that. It's coming up with a reckoning so that we as Americans can can understand what happened and in the future can make the adjustments necessary to be sure that we're properly protected. Another point that seems to be getting made is that the Clinton administration was really distracted by the Lewinsky thing and was looking for another shiny toy that feels almost really relevant right now, too, when we're just sort of distracted by everything else that's coming out of Washington. Yes, indeed. And I think you see the powerful role that distraction plays. That's a good point. And, but, you know, we do go into the Bush administration and, you know, they, their inability to comprehend what terrorism was and what kind of threat it posed. And it's fascinating to think because, you know, we start with the embassy bombings in 1998 and then the coal bombing in 2000, which happened right in the middle of the presidential election. And terrorism wasn't even a subject in the presidential debates. So, you know, for most Americans, it was something that happened far, far away. Talk to, about the storytelling structure, because you sort of go back and forth between, I don't want to call it present day, but sort of, l- l- let's say, the present future, where we're dealing with the Senate 9-11 commissions. Yeah. Is that to just offer a sense of perspective on everything that comes after it? It offers a sense of perspective, but I think it also offers a sense of how these stories get told by the agencies and the people involved. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're told in a very duplicitous, even mendacious way. So you can play with not only what happened, but how that story gets rendered. Uh, Again, very relevant right now. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, how much did you want to integrate real footage to sort of anchor this in a place and time? You know, we see real photos, we see real, you know, the Senate You see the real Osama bin Laden in episode mm-hmm. one. I mm-hmm. mean, he's interviewed by John Miller, and that's the real bin Laden. That's 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 mm-hmm. footage of bin Laden's camp, which mm-hmm. is to which John Miller, you know, was, was given access. So Unreal. It was important. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the technique that we're trying to do is that some people will be real people, you know. Uh, bin Laden, you know, the presidents and, you know, the, the, but the people around them uh, are, we have access to them as characters and we can tell the story of what's actually going on. And then by using the real footage, uh, it triggers people's memories of when those things happen and what was said. Also, in, in one key moment later on in the series, we see both the real George Tenet and Alec Tenet, uh, Alec, Alec Baldwin, Baldwin playing yeah. George Tenet in a way that I think is is interesting and yeah. and, and provocative. Yeah. 
Talk about casting Alec Baldwin. Why he was? Why was he right for the part? Oh, you don't question that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we 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 were thrilled uh, that that Alec uh, was willing to uh, to play Tennant, and um, and he, you know, he's he brings such standing, you know, to that role. You, you can't take your eyes off of him. Working with him on set, there's a kind of dynamism, you know, in what he does, that in a burning intensity that's so spectacular. Right. Um, and and he he you know there's a kind of ma- you know as a documentarian I, I haven't worked that much with actors but there's a kind of magic with some actors where you can see between the text and the performance a kind of magic that happens where mm-hmm. they internalize something and it comes out in a way that maybe they don't even expect uh, and it's that kind of vitality that he brings where you you never know what's going to come next with him uh, even if it's a kind of you know sort of Tramp down intensity. That he's he's uh, he's he's full of surprises and intelligence. I mean, yeah. he's he's a wildly intelligent guy. So he he did a magnificent job. I think the word intelligence is a good one to fix on because that's a commonality among our cast. Is you know it's not. I think they're an unusually intelligent and adept people. You know, and they're playing people who are really really smart. So it's, it, 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 you, that comes across with so many of our characters. I should say I, it was fun for me. There's, uh, the woman who plays Diane, Ren Schmidt, is a woman I'd worked with before. Uh, you know, I do mostly documentaries. But in one of the documentaries I'd done, I, I came across a character, one of the escorts who had slept with then-Governor Elliot Spitzer. And she gave testimony but wasn't willing to be on camera. Um, and so I, I edited down the... Um, uh, testimony, and hired Ren Schmidt to perform it on camera. So it was fun fun to get back together with Ren, who was also a spectacularly intelligent actress mm-hmm. who did an extraordinary amount of background research into uh, some of the folks at Alex Station. How much research did you want the cast to do? Did you want them to delve into the lives of the characters they were playing, or did you want them more work off the page? Well, we took them around uh, to introduced them to FBI agents and CIA uh, former CIA employees and uh, and we hired um, an FBI uh, consultant and somebody who worked in Alex station the bin Laden station and CIA consultant also. yeah and we had uh, we had Ali Soufan we had we wanted them to really know what these people are really like it's you know you can sit in an apartment in Brooklyn and try to imagine uh, how those people are, but what you're going to be imagining is things you've already seen on TV or in movies. And then you actually go to the FBI and meet these people, and suddenly, you know, a different kind of humanity makes itself obvious. And that reality is what we we're always trying to get for our characters. That said, every one of these actors has a very different kind of approach in terms of what they get into and why and how it steers them, whether they feel like they need to affect a kind of resemblance, a physical resemblance, which helps to take them into the role. And I think Michael Stuhlbarg is probably in that camp. Uh-huh. Or somebody like Jeff Daniels, you know, uh, is taking it from a completely different perspective where it's more about the internal spirit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's important to be able to set that table for the actors and then let them find 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 the character mm-hmm. either off the page or, or in the background material. I also want to give it a shout-out to Bill Camp, who's just tremendous oh, in this. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> Bill Camp is just the greatest. Yeah. And, and, and it's a wonderful character. And, 
And uh, I think can, next season he's going to play all the roles. Yeah, you, you can, <laughs> it's fine with me. Yeah, I'll fine watch. with me too. Yeah, he is such an extraordinarily nice guy. Very smart actor, also, yeah. but just inhabits the role in mm-hmm. a way that communicates so much humanity. I know. That whole unknotted tie just tells oh, you everything and, you need to and know. The, and the lines on his face, and this sort of the the the, the sag under his his uh, his eyes. Yeah. It's, it's just that world weary character who still has a sense of optimism about possibilities. I mean, yeah. it's just a great performance. He's fantastic. Yeah. As a documentarian, how does this experience compare for you? Is this a world you can see yourself returning to again? Sure, absolutely. I think it depends on, on the story, what's right for a documentary and what's right for a drama. But I really enjoyed this. And luckily, you know, particularly the actors were very generous. I mean, I found that as a documentarian, my job was to kind of capture what they were doing. And I would guide from time to time. But also they would give me a lot of feedback that was, that, that I found very helpful. And and I, and I think, too, that, you know, in this world, a number of documentary directors have, have come to drama. And I think as documentarians, we have pretty good bullshit detector. Uh, and that is, is helpful in, in a dramatic context. Mm-hmm. But I like the process very much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get a little bit impatient with the, with the enormous amount of um, uh, coverage. Well, not, not the yeah. co- coverage. Sometimes coverage is irritating. That's a more te- technical thing. But you're, you're traveling with a huge city. You know, in a documentary, you have a small crew. You know, it's more like a guerrilla unit. Now you're commanding an army. And sometimes that can be very useful. You know, the light is fading. You want to be able to move quickly to be able to get it. And suddenly, you know, 50 people snap into action and you get something that would never be possible otherwise. But sometimes you want to move on a dime. It's it's difficult to move that machinery. It's, it, you know, you... you it's hard for an army to hide in the underbrush. Unfortunately, it looks like we've got to end it there. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure. Well, it's been Thank honor. you so much. So that was what Alex Gibney and Lawrence Wright had to say about adapting Looming Tower for the small screen. Up next, Dan Funderman talks about his role as showrunner on the project. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dan Futterman. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, congratulations on Looming Tower. Thank you. How did you get involved with the project? Um, I was contacted by Larry and Alex, um, Alex Gibney and Lawrence Wright, uh, who have worked together in the past uh, as journalist and documentarian. And uh, I was aware of their work and a great admirer of both of them. And they were looking for a writer to do something they hadn't done before, which was turn Larry's terrific book into a dramatic series. Um, and, uh, we hit it off when we met, uh, I was excited by the prospect of doing that. And, uh, in particular, um, at the prospect of delving into the character of Ali Sufan, who Tahar Rahim plays him so incredibly well in the show. And it's personally meaningful. I know to Tahar to play this character of a Muslim American hero, immigrant from Lebanon, who is a um, who's a real who's a patriot? Um, deeply loves America, and is also trying to rescue his religion from uh, from people who are hijacking it. He feels it's a pretty timely message right now. It's a very timely message. Yeah. What were the biggest challenges for you in taking a nonfiction book and turning it into a narrative series? There's always a challenge of walking the line uh, or or finding the middle ground in the push-pull of 
absolute fact and dramatic narrative, emotional truth, however you want to describe it. There was a lot of discussion first between Larry and Alex and me, and then uh, the writers' room. We had an, an incredible group of writers on this um, on this show, and Larry and Alex would come drop in on us, and we talk about um, each episode and the stuff we were thinking about and and their concerns or encouragement, um, and uh, and that a lot of the discussion was around this. Um, what characters can we conflate? What events can we um, can we conflate? What's the heart of the story that we can be true to while dramatizing certain conversations or events? Um, we hope we hit it right, but I'm sure some people will disagree. That's what makes for criticism. Um, how involved did you get? Did you let the real people that behind the stories, behind the characters, get involved? Were they ever in the writers' room? No, never in the, in the writers' room. But we talked to Ali Sufan. Oh, maybe Ali Sufan came in into the writers' room. He's a producer on the show. Um, he was incredibly available and helpful to us. Uh, you know what? He did come, and actually, his wife came as well. She's a character, Heather. Um, that that their relationship is fairly fictionalized. I would say they we we wanted to discover them at a, a slightly different point in their relationship than they actually were, and that was okay with them. Uh, <clears throat> And we interviewed a lot of people outside the writer's room. Richard Clark was very gracious and available to us, uh, although he wasn't reading scripts. He was um, he received us in his offices in Washington, spoke to us, um, emailed with us. So he was um, he was someone who was really helpful. Uh, and we we had access to. A lot of, uh, in particular, FBI um, personnel who are still on the I forty nine squad, who um, who we portray in the uh, in the show, they were they were available to answer questions. Of course, the one big person who wasn't available was John O'Neill, who really becomes the center of all of this. Um, he's a pretty big character. He's but he's also pretty flawed. How much did that direct your storytelling? I think it was always clear, it was clear to Larry and Alex before I came on and, and clear to the three of us when we started talking about the show that the events would swirl around him. Um, he, yeah, as you said, he was a big, he was a big character. Um, he, uh, the things that made him a great investigator, a great leader, his passion, uh, his bullheadedness, were also the things that uh, that that uh, eventually undermined him. Um, he had a self-promoting streak and a self-destructive streak. Um, incredibly attractive to certain people, and uh, and repellent to other people. Those contradictions are um, are great to delve into as writers. I think we're great to delve into as um, for Jeff as an actor. It also makes the story feel so real. I mean, we're dealing obviously with history and some pretty big, complicated issues, but we're also seeing it through the lens of these very personal, very flawed people. Yeah, John O'Neill in particular, <clears throat> and and in terms of how he dealt with or was forced to deal with uh, people at 
you know, what ended up being in certain ways competing agencies where the, the CIA and the FBI were tasked with working together uh, to combat terrorism. And it didn't work that way, unfortunately. Sometimes it did, but often it didn't. <clears throat> Sometimes it was personal animosity. Sometimes it, it was the fault of personnel in one or the other of the agencies. Sometimes it was John O'Neill's fault. Um, but sometimes it was a matter of turf wars, which looking back seems so petty at the time, I think to the certain of the players, it didn't seem petty at all. It seemed important that one age, they felt like that one agency or the other was better equipped to deal with this. And it was a, and it was a decision that was, uh, a patriotic decision. We try to portray that as well. Um, even if you see now in hindsight that people are making the wrong decision, you want to try to understand why they made that decision. That's a perfect segue to talk about Peter Sarsgaard's character because, you you know, obviously it's the rivalry with him and John O'Neill that plays out, but you also don't want him to seem just like a one-note villain in all of this. Well, Peter's never going to seem like a one-note villain. <laughs> He's a, an incredibly interesting guy and, and an incredibly interesting actor. Uh, we were really lucky to have him. I, you know, it's, it's interesting to, for people to talk about that character as, uh, as a villain. I don't think any of us saw him that way. And I actually think people are going to watch this. If they watch it, I hope they watch it. But if people watch it, they're going to see him talking about, um, in a very forceful way, dealing with Al Qaeda, particularly post embassy bombings, Mm -hmm. bombing all the camps at once, uh, one fell swoop, wiping as much of them out as possible. And a lot of people today are going to think that guy was right. Yeah. And they should have listened to him. So I hope that people come to come away with a, a more nuanced view of all of this than just uh, heroes and villains. It wasn't that, I don't think it was that way at all. And I hope we didn't portray it that way. No, no, I mean, not at all. I'm just saying, you know, it felt like a lot of it was the rivalry. A lot of it's played off, you know, as this sort of, you know, interagency rivalry, is that a theme that you're trying to explore? Is that something we can learn from for the future? Hopefully. I think, you know, Larry's view is that uh, things have changed for the better since then. It's one of the things that the 9-11 Commission was tasked to report on was how they can improve the intelligence community and and, uh, the interactivity of these agencies. Um. Yeah, that was an, that was an in point for us as uh, as writers in in terms of um, portraying that. It was something that Richard Clark talked about with us, and it was both on a professional and a personal level. He felt profoundly disappointed professionally that he wasn't able to wrangle these agencies to work together. I think he felt personally devastated that he felt that he was lied to. Let's talk about the religion scene. There's this great sort of montage of we see John O'Neill's character going to Catholic church and then Ali Sufan going to his prayer. What was the point you were trying to convey with that? <clears throat> I was aware when I was writing it that it's important to realize that these religions are not so very different from one another. They stem from the same place. They're all Abrahamic religions. And the the devotional aspects have a lot of similarity there. The, um, the prayer beads in Islam, the rosary beads in Catholicism, the kneeling or prostrating yourself. Um, 
And uh, at the same time, both of the characters, Ali Sufan and John O'Neill in that sequence are a little bit removed. <clears throat> They're there for different reasons. John O'Neill is there for his girlfriend, who is at that point more more devoted to the religion than than he is. Ali Sufan is there because he's curious what's going on in this mosque in London. A storyline that became important to us as writers as we kept writing it was the increasing devotion that Ali Sufan feels as the season goes on, <clears throat> as he realizes how hijacked his religion is becoming. And it only increases his interest and his, his, um, his devotion. And, uh, and so that's the, that's the kickoff point for all of those stories to go forward. John O'Neill as well, um, as, as you see, as you continue to watch, becomes more um, interested in Catholicism, re-interested in Catholicism. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing more. Congratulations again on the show. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking about NBC's new high school drama, Rise, with star Josh Radner and creator Jason Kadams. See you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.